0: Well, uh, because of the fall, sometimes uh, what we've been handed down and uh, we respond to our work with disappointment, underworking, overengaged, and sometimes just disengaged. And uh, I don't believe that is the way that God would have us respond to our work and uh, that the gospel helps us see work in a different light. And helps us respond in a different way. Some of the things that we talked about last week is just the surprising truth that Genesis reveals that work was not part of the curse, but it was a part of paradise. And we saw that God is a worker and we're made in his image. And in doing that, God as creator and maker has also made us to create and cultivate just as he did. And whether your work is making a product or providing a service for society, work can be good, and it can be our worship, meaning it's how we show our love to God, it's how we show our love to others when we work. And all work can be noble. And uh, with the curse being handed down to it, it does make work difficult. And each of us runs into thorns and thistles, just as Adam and Eve did, that can at times make our work fruitless. Meaning it seems like we, we put all this energy into it, and then at the end of the day we go, did I accomplish anything? What, what just happened here? And resistance to our work is, is now a reality, but it's not the final word because Jesus came to redeem us from the curse, and he came as a life-giving spirit, and his work on the cross was not fruitless but overcame the curse for us, accomplishing what our work on our own can never do and can never accomplish, the saving of our souls. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus can change work for us where we can participate in creating, participate in cultivating, and be a life-giving presence also wherever we're at, not a life-sucking presence. So today, in the next few moments, what I want to do is give three examples, three stories, of people that, that exemplify this idea of creating and cultivating. And uh, one of the stories is in contrast to the other two. One of the stories is, is maybe for those of us who feel like maybe, man, I've, I've not done so well with work, and I've, there's compromises I've made in life, and I just don't know, I, I think maybe I've disqualified, my, disqualified myself from really being useful in God's hands. And, and so there's one story, I, it's, it's for hope for all of us. Uh, who maybe fall into that category in that position. So, uh, But before I get to those three stories, there is um, a little bit of groundwork I just want to do. And with that, uh, first thing is this. One, um, the resistance of the fall really uh, to our work may make us uh, choose to be disappointed or overengaged or disengaged or choose to underwork, but there are clear reasons for those uh, for those things, without Christ and a worldview influenced by Him, uh, we'll, we'll take on the perspective of that, that's found in Ecclesiastes. I mean, we'll 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 look at all the hard work and toil, and we'll just say it's meaningless. It's just meaningless. And many of us would want, we want to make impact in the world. You know, we, we, we want to uh, do well in the field that we're in. We want to do something to make the world a better place. But even if we are one of the few people that really breaks through and accomplishes all that we hope for, there is a realization in the end that there are no lasting achievements. They're all swept away by history. And, and again... Uh, The man from Ecclesiastes uh, uh, describes this for us, the man who who did all these things and tested these things. You know, someone comes after you and and undoes all your work, and even the the famous are eventually forgotten. But sometimes our work can be alienating because of depersonalization of some work and and industrialization and information age. And other times, work is, is frustrated by tiers of hierarchy, endless delays and excuses that come from bureaucracy. And we get so frustrated and we're like, why do I even do this? Why go through all the red tape? It just ends up, and we, we just want to throw it all away, throw it out. And the man from Ecclesiastes also asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of, of enjoyment? And in the end, working for your, for your own sake can be unrewarding. You know, sometimes we think, I'm working so that I can save for this, save for that, uh, have this nice retirement, or I can buy this lake house or whatever. Um, but ultimately, the man from Ecclesiastes says, "Work is pointless if life under the sun is all there is, and that 's the key to Ecclesiastes is knowing that he 's describing a uh, part of what he 's describing is life for someone who thinks life under the sun is all there is. But if there is more than just our existence under the sun, there is hope, and there is hope for our work." And that we can find satisfaction in our toil. That, are, that is the words from the man from Ecclesiastes. So, uh, But to get a proper framework for our work, we need a proper view. And, and that's what from Ecclesiastes we see. We see someone who's struggling with uh, the meaning, uh, pointlessness of work, but understanding in a proper framework that we can't always say that uh, we can we can get meaning, or we can find purpose in our work, but we can't always say that all our meaning is in our work, or the meaning of life is in our work. There can be purpose, but not meaning, and there's got to be a bigger picture, a broader framework for which our work fits in, or else we will be disappointed, we will be disengaged, we will be, uh, uh, you know, checked out. So, how do we get that proper perspective? I, I, I just want to, again, uh, the second part of laying some groundwork here before I go into the three stories. And, and one, for us, we have to, again, see the bigger story. If you want to make sense of your own story in this life, of your own work in this life. And here's an example of what I mean. Uh, Say so you're standing at a bus stop. And while standing at the bus stop, a young man comes up to you and he says, uh, the Latin word for wild duck is Historonicus, Historonicus, Historonicus. Walks away. What do you make of that? I mean, the sentence, you can understand what he said, but really his actions make no sense to you. And you've got to figure out what is the story around that. Why, why did he say that to you? Because then maybe it makes sense, right? So, I mean, it could be that the young man, he's, he's mentally ill. And he just, he's just saying weird things to people uh, at random places. And maybe that's, that would make sense of the statement. Uh, maybe, maybe the young man, uh, he saw someone who looked just like you the other day who asked him, hey, what's the Latin word for a wild duck? And, and maybe that would make sense of this, this little story. Or it could, be, it could be that he is an agent for, you know, he's a spy of, from another country, and he's making, a, you know, saying the code for making his contact with someone, and, and you were not the, the right contact. So, you know, those kind of things, the context or the bigger picture helps you make sense of this little moment, this little event, and without it, it doesn't make sense, you know, the, the first story is, is sad, you know, if he's mentally ill. The second is, is comic if he thinks that you're someone that you're not. And, and the third is a bit dramatic, I mean, if he's a spy. But the point is, without a handle on the story, there's no way to understand the meaning of what happened and no way, how to, no way to understand how to answer that young man. And if you get the story wrong, your response will be wrong. I mean, you you pick a fight with someone who's a secret agent. I mean, they might kill you. You might be an assassin. Who knows? But you see, the story or the narrative is foundational to the way we think. If you get the story of our world wrong, for example, if you think life is mainly about self-actualization and self-fulfillment rather than loving God, you're going to get your life responses wrong, including the way you go about your work. Another example of this and what I'm trying to say with putting your work in the proper framework. Here, here's an example. Little Red Riding Hood took some food to her grandmother and they ate it together. That's a charming description, but it's hardly a story. There's no plot. A story that makes sense to us but must also have the possibility of things uh, uh, being put right. So here's Little Red Riding Hood was at her grandmother's house, but a wolf broke in and ate them both. That's more dramatic, but it's just a dramatic set of facts. And again, it's not a story. For a story to be a good narrative, there should be an account of how life should be, an explanation of how it gets thrown off balance, and then some proposed solution to what will put life right again. And these components of a story are what fields of study outside of literature call a worldview. And there are different worldviews that are trying to make sense of the events of this life. But to me, the Christian storyline works beautifully to make sense of things. The whole world is good. Creation, God said it was good. That's the plan. The world is fallen. That's the fall. It's the problem. The whole world is going to be redeemed. It's the restoration. It's the solution. That makes sense. And when you put work into that framework, we can understand what is wrong with work and how there is a solution to make work fulfilling And the way God intended it. So with these two things laid down as a groundwork, let's take uh, a couple of examples from God's Word. The first is the story of a young man named Daniel. He was a young man from a royal family in Israel, captured in the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. And Daniel, along with others, is taken into the court of the king of Babylon. And he begins uh, uh, some cultural and educational training. And their Hebrew names uh, Dan, it, are changed, and they're given names of, of foreign Babylonian gods. Now, Daniel doesn't balk at this. He, he receives, and he takes the new name, and uh, he receives the training. Uh, and he goes on, and he learns, and he excels. But when it comes to his main identity as a believer in the Almighty God, Daniel decides to speak up and not keep his faith private. And Daniel devises a plan that helps uh, his boss... And helps him keep the integrity of his faith. He was challenged with uh, the the training program and the food that they were receiving. And Daniel, instead of drawing a line in the sand saying, nope, can't do that. My faith says I can't. He comes up with a a solution, a test that works both for him and for his boss. Again, he's creating. Daniel is creating a new path. Sometimes we think there's choice A and choice B, and sometimes we've got to know that there is a third option. I, I believe the gospel and the God always can help us find a third option. So Daniel has a certain areas that he will not compromise. And when it comes to prayer, everyone knows that Daniel goes and prays three times a day. Now, it's not that he's advertising it. It's just that Daniel is taking a prayer break on his balcony. And uh, people go, well, where'd Daniel go? Okay, he's praying. And uh, when Daniel interprets the dream of the Babylonian king, he points to the God who made everything and explains how God makes sense of everything. So Daniel makes a great impact upon two different kings through his public faith. But before his faith was widely known, hear this. Daniel applied himself to all the teaching and the literature of the Babylonians. And God gave him great knowledge and understanding. And Daniel, he cultivates what has been given to him. He cultivates it. He creates, he comes up with a plan, but he also cultivates and grows and excels. Daniel, at one point, uses his gift of understanding dreams to save his fellow counselors of the government administration he's working in. And without a worldview of faith influencing his work, without a bigger story, it made no sense for Daniel To make a sacrifice for his co-workers who were his competitors. They wouldn't have done the same thing for him. And later we we learn that, that, that they don't. They'd rather get rid of him. But when he's the one with the upper hand and the power, he sacrifices for his fellow workers and he saves their lives. Daniel served to the best of his abilities in two different government administrations, serving the work of the Babylonian and Persian government. Under each administration, his faith informed him and guided him in his decisions. And he did this even when there was strong opposition to him from his co-workers. At one point under the Persian government, jealous co-workers tried to find dirt on him to get him fired. But they couldn't find anything. Daniel's example of work is one of great integrity in someone who created and cultivated In his workplace. Now, Daniel was someone, he didn't get to choose his work. His work was chosen for him. He was put in it, and and he did his best with it. Now, uh, another story is the story of Nehemiah. And he is a man who did get to choose his work. Nehemiah uh, is another story of someone whose faith led him to take some risk. Nehemiah didn't have God revealing dreams to him. uh, Didn't speak to him personally. But he operated in, in the way that many of us operate today. Operating in what he was passionate about. Seeking God's help to accomplish something that was beyond himself and, and what he could offer. Nehemiah wanted to help his people, but in that work he wasn't looking for a merit badge for community service. He understood that rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, kind of urban planning, was a work that served the community. And as a worker, he served the work. He created teams of families to build the wall, and he cultivated a sustainable plan for work and a plan beyond the completion of the wall. His satisfaction wasn't merely in serving the community, but satisfaction was beholding the perfection of the work itself. And that kept Nehemiah from thinking the people owed him something for his pains. You know, when he had to confront the nobles of the city for their oppression of the poor, the community had no hold on him. No claim on him. He wasn't looking for an award from the nobles and a pat on the back. And so he was able to confront them and bring justice where it was needed. Nehemiah, unlike Daniel, chose his work and his story reveals someone overcoming the resistance that comes against the work that we have passion for. Now, But there's someone in contrast, a third story, in contrast to Daniel and Nehemiah. And Daniel and Nehemiah are kind of intimidating. I mean, when you look at their stories... There's no list of their sin. There's no, they made a mistake, and this is how God worked through their mistake and redeemed it. There's no mistakes. There's no sins recorded about them. And they seem like these giants of integrity. But, you know, when when we read these stories, it may be kind of like, wow, I haven't been that way. I've I've made some compromises at work. Um, There's some things I regret. I wish I wouldn't have done. You know, I don't know if I could ever have that kind of, I don't know, can I, can I move into this creating, cultivating at work? Can I be an ambassador in my workplace? But this is a story where there is self-interest and, and there's temptation of power, but it doesn't prevail in the end. And the final, this final story is, is about a woman named Esther. And I hope that she'll give hope to each of you that we can convert from operating from other worldviews some other story, and start operating in a new worldview, the Christian worldview, cultivating and creating in a way that makes sense, and makes sense of things in our world. The, the story with Esther starts with King Xerxes. He's the Persian king, all, pretty all-powerful, and has, uh, dis- he's disposed of his queen Vashti because she was too bold and, and she displeased him. And uh, he searches for a new queen, and he discovers Esther. And uh, she's a beautiful young Jewish girl. And uh, the way the story goes, he sleeps with her and, she's, and he's uh, pleased with her. And Esther, uh, at this point, is told to hide her Jewish identity. And uh, she is elevated to, to be queen in the royal palace. Now, just in those few sentences describing Esther's story, you might be outraged by Esther's subservience. You might be offended that she keeps her faith quiet. You might be bothered that she sleeps with a man to whom she's not married, but through all these moral compromises, she rises to a place near the center of power. And so in such a a morally, culturally, and spiritually ambiguous situation, does God still work with us and work through us? Well, the answer in the book of Esther is yes. In her story, yes, there, there is an official named Haman who's convinced the king that the Jewish people are dangerous to his empire, and, and uh, he sets a future date where the neighbors of Jewish families throughout the realm will be free to kill and plunder the wealth. And Mordecai, Esther's relative, who at first told Esther, keep your faith quiet, don't talk about it, uh, he then comes to Esther and asks her to use her position to bring about uh, the saving of her people, to bring some just social order. And then Esther replies by saying, hey, Mordecai, I mean, it's capital punishment. Uh, if, if I go to the king unbidden, I mean, you don't know what you're asking. I mean, I could lose everything. I, I, I could be kicked out of the palace. You, you remember what happened to the last queen. Where's Vashti? I think she's in a dungeon somewhere. But Mordecai responds by telling her, if she risks losing the palace, she might lose everything. But if she doesn't, risk losing the palace, she will lose everything. If you're unwilling to risk your place in the palace for your neighbors, the palace owns you. You'll eventually be sniffed out and your secret of being a Jew will become known. So Mordecai, though, warns her, but he ends with hope, saying, but who knows? Who knows that you've come into this position, this place, for such a time as this? And Mordecai places Esther in a worldview with God in it, a worldview that makes sense of things. And at this point, something changes for Esther. She, she begins to respond, and the old Esther, who's shy and quiet and demure, seems to disappear. And after these words from her uncle, who knows that you've come into the world for such a time as this, she, she changes And all of a sudden, there's this new Esther that stands up, and she is bold, and she tells Mordecai, okay, gather up the Jewish people, get in the fast and pray for three days, and I will do the same. And at the end of three days, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And then her famous words, and if I perish, I'll perish. And there are following in the story you can read it it's one of the most dramatic books in the bible but there's a series of coincidences that we know are not coincidences coincidences and they occur uh with esther's courage along with her courage and she's received by the king and and the ha- and the hatred of haman is a and haman is executed and the jewish people are saved and esther in this story she's called queen esther 14 times in this book 13 times are after she says if i perish i perish <clears throat> she becomes a person of greatness not by trying to make a name for herself but by identifying with her people and mediating for them now if again what i said earlier if you were to think about who is the man or woman god uses you might think of someone like a missionary a teacher a church leader or some specialist in some sort of spiritual work. But here today, there are three people who are not priests, not preachers. Now, Daniel was an administrator in the government. Nehemiah was an urban planner and developer. Esther is a woman with power in the civil government. People working for economic flourishing, better public policy, racial justice, all in cultures that defined and valued these things differently from the Jewish perspective A perspective that has God in the world view. And God used these three people. You may or may not get to choose the work of your passion. Nehemiah got to choose. Daniel didn't. But either way, cultivate yourself like a garden and make room for the ministry of competence. Do your work well. You have a work that serves and produces for others. It, it may be that it benefits your f- your family, society, and benefits yourself, but think about how your work can benefit your field of work itself. Serve the work, and you may not always get approval from the people around you, but you will be satisfied with the work and have joy in it. Don't merely be inspired by Daniel, Nehemiah, and Esther. You know Maybe you know that you need to take more risk or or you've been too quiet about your faith or you're going to not just use influence to move yourself ahead, but use it to serve people. Those are all good and right impulses. Follow them, but they won't be enough. Your resolve won't last. Whether it's guilt or inspiration that motivates you, they will both wear off because living in a new way is hard. Look at someone like Esther not just as an example, but a signpost, a pointer. Here, God made everything. He sustains our life every moment. Therefore, we owe Him everything. But we live as if everything we have is ours to use as we see fit to make it our own name great. Even people who do not consider themselves Christ followers know that there is something wrong with this picture by everyone's standards we are violating our relationship with God and and the religions of the world disagree on the story and the reasons but they all agree on something there is a gap between the divine and us and something has to be done about it but the answer from the bible is right here in the story of Esther Esther saved her people through identification and mediation her people were condemned but she identified with them and came under the same condemnation she risked her life and said if i perish i perish because she identified she could mediate before the throne of power like no one else could and because she received favor there that favor was transferred to her people sounds like someone else we know doesn't it esther points to jesus the son of god Who lived in the ultimate palace and he left it behind and identified with us, taking on our condemnation. He didn't do it at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. He didn't say, If I perish, he said, When I perish. And he went to the cross and died and canceled our sins. And now he stands before the ultimate throne of power, and the favor he has procured is ours if we believe in him. He has brought the ultimate mediation. Band, you guys can come on up here. Look, Esther is not just an example to us, but a pointer. And Jesus is not just an example, but He is a Savior who did these things for you and for me personally. And I believe if you really think about these things, if God could give you some clarity about these things, the truth could change your identity. It can convince you of your real value. And ironically, when you see how much you are loved, your work will become far less selfish. Suddenly, all the other things in your work life, your influence, your resume, and the benefits they bring you, they just become things. You can risk them. You can spend them. You can even lose them. You are free. Knowing Jesus gave up the ultimate palace for you that can make you and enable you to serve God and your neighbor from your place in the palace, and it all makes sense if you understand the bigger story. It can help bring meaning to our smaller story of work. When we understand the framework which our work fits, we can better see how we can convert to this idea of creating and cultivating. Lord Jesus, in the next few moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring clarity, that you would help understanding. Lord, that you would help people get a picture of their work and how it fits in the larger framework of what you're doing in the world. Lord, how that can change everything in our view of work and how we respond to our work. God, I know that you have, you have called these people out to bear Your name wherever they're at. You've put them specifically. You've arranged times and places where they work next to or they sit next to or they, they, they work alongside people that need to know You. God, help us to be Your people wherever we're at, especially in our work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and let's worship.